you probably didn't know that lobsters have a lot to teach us about developing artificial intelligence and autonomous robots. At least for this week's guest on the Tech Emergence podcast, that is in fact the case. Dr. Joseph Ayers has worked for decades on studying the lobster and was involved in early biomimetic research, that is, research that involves modeling uh, actual animals and creatures and phenomena in the environment in terms of our technological developments. Uh, Dr. Joseph Iris has actually modeled a complete lobster in robotic form, not only in terms of how it walks and moves and looks, but arguably in terms of how it behaves and thinks. We'll speak today on uh, why biomimetic research, that is, again, research that models uh, the, the world of biology, can be advantageous in robotics and how it has been for Joseph. In addition to that, we'll speak to uh, why DARPA is actually interested in robotic lobsters for hunting mines. So without further ado, we'll get directly into this week's episode. So Joseph, I, I figure we could start things off with, with what is probably your, your best known line of research, which is replicating these lobsters in robotic form, starting off as a neuroscience guy and then eventually you know, transferring that knowledge into the, the replicating of, of the, the neural activity and eventually the actual embodiment of a lobster. H how did that go about in the first place? How did you make that, that transition? Well, I started in uh, 1970 um, studying the control of the walking legs in lobsters. And the problem that we were interested in was how they could use the same neural circuit to walk in different directions. So we did a lot of uh, what were really behavioral experiments where we recorded from the muscles, and we established a hypothetical network model of, of how the lobster controlled its walking legs. Uh, then in the interim, I did a, a, some work on the, an animal called the sea lamprey. And yeah. the sea lamprey recovers uh, almost completely from a total spinal cord transection. So we were trying to figure out how their nervous system rewired itself so they could swim after they'd been injured. And these are like a snake-type a snake type animal, I mean, yeah, at least yeah. in appearance, and right? Yep. What is interesting about these two animal models is that they uh, have a fundamental architecture for their locomotory behavior, which is called the Command Neuron Coordinating Neuron Central Pattern Generator Model. And that argues that each limb, for example, or each segment of the body in the lamprey, has a little network in it called the central pattern generator. And that central pattern generator can generate the movements in the absence of sensory feedback. Then there turns out to be in the brain of both of these animals some neurons that descend down and activate these central pattern generators to turn them on so they start generating this rhythm. And then there are some other neurons called coordinating neurons that send information from a governing central pattern generator to a governed central pattern generator to maintain the inner light gate, for example, or to cause this wave of activity to propagate down the body in the lamprey. Now, this model is quite general, and um, I got uh, sort of roped into uh, thinking about could we build robots based on this architecture um, in the early 90s. And uh, initially, we built an undulatory mechanism for a lamprey-like robot. And then I was funded uh, to actually build a lobster and a uh, lamprey robot. Yep. And when we first started building these, uh, we used a fairly established control architecture called a finite state machine. Finite and state machine. And we organized okay. these state machines um, <clears throat> 
to be organized on the rules of how these neural central pattern generators operated. So the state machines were quite unique relative to the standard ones that were coming out of MIT, for example, in that they really focused on the known operation of these neural circuits. Um, and so we built these robots and got them operating and quickly realized that if we use this sort of algorithmic state machine architecture, unless we programmed uh, an escape strategy for every possible contingency the robot could get into, it was going to get stuck. Yep. This is really kind of the state of the art of most autonomous robots, or what they call autonomous robots right now, is that they tend to get stuck a lot. And in fact, the, the, the kind of the state-of-the-art in autonomy is to be able to recover your telecommunications link if you lose it. Now, around this time, I uh, uh, got together with my old postdoctoral advisor, and he had gotten together with some uh, physicists, and they started developing nonlinear dynamical models of neurons. And they found that lobster neurons have only four degrees of dynamical freedom, and they came up with a set of equations which described the interrelations of these degrees of freedom and realized those as an analog computer. Much, and, much easier to uh, calibrate, I guess, than, a, you know, than going into a mammal. It sounds like you can figure out a lobster easy enough to replicate a lot, a lot simpler than you could with other creatures. Exactly. So, so these electronic neurons become parts like the Lego parts. Yep. And so um, when, when I first started working with these guys, I first did a whole bunch of perturbation experiments that I had done on living neurons and realized that these things were pretty much indistinguishable from living neurons. They really captured all of the behavior in responses to injected current and, and current pulses and perturbations and these kinds of things. So uh, I realized, you know, this is something that we could really begin to model a nervous system with. So I took the circuit that I had worked out when I was in graduate school to control walking in different directions and build it with these electronic neurons, and it behaved exactly like a real lobster when it was wired up to one of my robot lobster legs. So I really realized that we were on to something here, and um, I think the most important point is this point that if you try to control robots with computer programs, unless you've anticipated everything they're going to do and have that wired into your controller, they're going to get stuck. Well, animals never get stuck. What animals do is they wiggle and squirm. And if you record the movements of them, you can quickly convince yourself that their movements become chaotic. And the beauty of these electronic neurons is that they have variable chaos. So our long-term goal here is to start building these controllers with variable chaos to see if we can get the robots to wiggle and squirm like the real animals. Got it. Okay. Kind of, uh, again, not necessarily need a, a baked-in uh, answer to every particular physical environment that they might knock themselves into, uh, but be able to feel their way through and wriggle their way out uh, like an actual animal uh, would. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, exactly. Understood. So, so what uh, we were then funded by DARPA again to build an undulatory robot based on the lamprey. So this thing swims like an eel, but a lamprey is a much more primitive animal. Um, 
and the nervous system circuitry of the lamprey has been worked out in great detail. And it, you know, and out of curiosity, just as you go into this, Joseph, just for the background of the people listening in, I know your lobster robots, part of the DARPA funding reasoning here is because these are animals that are versatile and can crawl around on the seafloor and potentially find mines, um, which is a rather important sort of benefit, whether military or just humanitarian, uh, you know, getting rid of these things because there's a lot of still active mines out there. For the lamprey, why was DARPA interested in the lamprey? Is this a, a creature that can... Well, uh, so... So there's two issues. One is a lot of mines are suspended in the water column. So they're hung to an anchor and they float up at some depth. And so if you have an undulatory robot that can swim through the water, if it has a look-forward sonar, it'll be scanning for these sorts of mines. Wow. So there's still a lot of those kinds of mines out there, huh? Mines that are literally floating at a certain depth? Is that if the lobster robot is down in clutter, so it's down in rocks or coral, yep. it's going to be very hard to communicate with with sonar. Yep. If we have a swimming robot swimming above the lobster, we can communicate with the swimming robot that can then talk to the lobster and have a, a viable communications pathway. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Now, just out of curiosity, you'd mentioned the Balkans and other areas like that. Where are a lot of these active water mines still around? You know, You'd almost think like, Wow, how could... Well, let's put it this way. Um, The Portuguese colonialists in Mozambique circled most of the major cities by large minefields that were like a kilometer wide around the whole city. And then they would have gates where you could get in and out of the city. Around 2000, they had a major flood where there was about 20 feet of water around several of the larger cities. And all these mines floated and got randomly distributed. Now, when the water goes away, it ends up in the waterways. So then you've got mines and rivers and streams. Hmm. So that, that's, now, did, that's did, a did classic the, example of where you would have a humanitarian demining situation. Man, and did, did any of them explode, I wonder? It sounds like maybe some of them must have. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, no, the UN put a big uh, operation down there where they created some large... Um, basically trucks that were armored on the bottom that would drive around and just blow up the mine. Oh, wow. Excuse me? That is wild, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Goodness gracious. uh, Okay, so... uh, That was all done around 2000, 2002. Okay, okay. So so hypothetically, these lampreys, again, DARPA's funding this stuff for a reason, these these lampreys and and the lobsters, the lobsters could could look around for mines on the seafloor and the lampreys could potentially look at them at different ocean depths and communicate those uh, via via sonar. Okay, understood. So the idea is to use a team of robots operating through a merge, which is the organizational principle that social insects use. Yep. So that they actually can cooperate and do things that individuals themselves couldn't do. Understood. So, so that's when you started getting into the lampreys as well. Yeah, yeah. So then we got the, the lamprey robot with the nervous system working, and now we're in the last stages of getting the lobster robot working with a nervous system. And uh, we, we are currently funded by the Office of Naval Research uh, to basically give these robots the, a sense of smell. And the idea here is to use principles of synthetic biology where we take bacteria or yeast and we engineer them 
so that they have um, um, surface receptors that respond to odorants like potentially explosives. And then they cause the bac bacteria or yeast to produce a reporter that could be light. So there are enzymes called luciferases that give off light yep. or to produce a gas called nitric oxide. And then we're building little detectors that form a nose for the robots so we can then put those bacteria on the robots and give them a sense of smell so they can smell uh, these agents that harm out. Hmm. And now, a lot of this is is clearly inspired by nature in many regards. I mean, the way that these robots are being controlled from what you're articulating in terms of the way that the, the lamprey moves and the, the lobster moves, um, this is based on how their relatively simple uh, neural setup is. That was sort of the inspiration for how their control setup is in your robotic form. And now it's it's almost as though the sense of smell that you're referring to is that's also using some kind of biomimetic inspiration there in terms of how totally, scent works? Totally. Yeah, yeah. So the whole idea is that these animals are existence proofs of how an animal can solve these problems. Yeah. So both the lamprey and the lobster are predators, and the investigative behavior that they use during predation is exactly what you would want a robot to do to hunt underwater mines. Yeah. Now, so what we... we when, when, we, when I say biomimetic, is that what I'm really focusing on is the behavior of the robot, and we're trying to mimic the behavior. And in order to do that, we have to approximate the physics of the animal as closely as possible. So, for example, the lobster robot has three degree of freedom's legs that allow them to walk forwards and backwards and sideways. Yep. So they become highly maneuverable. It has things that look like claws and a tail on it because lobsters use their claws and tail as hydrodynamic control surfaces to get stability underwater. And then we're trying to we encode the sensations uh, using regular ang uh, angular, uh, I mean, uh, analog uh, sensors, so sensors and bump sensors, accelerometers, or compasses, and then we encode that into the kind of code that sensory neurons use called the labeled line code. So the analogies all throughout these robots are to provide an engineered solution to a methodology that the animal evolved over millions of years. Yeah, it's curious. You know, I think the assumption is, and, and this is what's interesting about biomimetic work, um, and there's, uh, I saw an interesting Discovery, I think it was Discovery Channel, a um, little documentary called Making Things Wilder um, that, that talked a lot about biomimetic work and everything from surfaces to uh, autonomous robots and flying robots and things like that. Um, but what's interesting about this is that you'd almost think, okay, we need, a, we need a machine that can find mines. You'd almost think, okay, well, let's make a machine. you think the idea would start with machine, but as it turns out, which is the very curious part about biomimetics, um, just sort of like intelligence, we, we gain some inspiration by looking at brains. Um, instead of creating a machine from scratch, okay, well, it would maybe it would have some, some uh, wings and maybe it would have, you know, instead of doing that, we say, well, what are the best darn creatures at maneuvering, you know, what are, the, what are existing models of things that can maneuver 
uh, very well in these particular environments, why don't we go figure out exactly how they do it, and maybe that's a better bet than designing an, a machine from scratch that we hope works under these conditions. Why don't we build something that we know darn well works great under these conditions? Sounds like well, that's a thought that, process. That comparative physiology. Yep. So in comparative physiology, you find the animal model that exhibits what you're interested in but has gives you the greatest technical access to it. And the thing about lobsters and lamprey is they have these uniquely re-identifiable neurons that enable us to go out and figure out what the actual wiring diagram yep. is. And then we build an engineered substitute for the neuron that's, and wire those up to create the animal services. And that's, that's the benefit of uh, working with prehistoric creatures. You, you got no, no cortex to pry apart. You know, a lamprey's only got so much going on. Yeah, libraries actually are pretty complicated. They have huh. a they have a forebrain, midbrain, hindbrain. They've got oh, all the stuff them. that you see Jeez. in a normal brain. More than I would have thought. Uh, they just don't have any myelin, so you can actually see the neurons. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. And so, all right. So, I'm interested, uh, Joseph, as to some of your thoughts around where the future of 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 these kind of applications might be. I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg in terms of biomimetic, uh, you know, and, and sort of biology inspired robotics applications um well the there's, there's two issues here yeah go ahead um, the first one is autonomy and uh people are very for some reason afraid of artificial intelligence because they see too many movies where people have great imaginations um but autonomy is really the ability to go out and do something on your own now the kind of autonomy we're interested in producing with these robots is what we call supervised reactive autonomy. And the best way to think about this is if you take your dog for a walk, you're the supervisor and the dog is following you. And then if you throw a stick out in the pond, the dog autonomously swims out, retrieves the stick and comes back to you. Yep. Now that's the natural way to control robots. Yep. Okay, and that's the, that's the approach we're taking. Now, the second aspect of robots, and not very many people except the people that build robots understand this, is persistence. Robots are controlled by batteries, and batteries don't last very long. So one of the things that we're working on is to be, produce basically a little gas station for our robots that will be a battery that sits on the bottom that has a docking station on it so the robots can walk up and recharge, and then going to be a thing called an Archimedes wave swing. Whoa. And an Archimedes wave swing is, a, is sort of like a little pillbox apparatus that as waves go over it, even though they may be way above the, the bottom, they cause a pressure change, and that causes the lid of this pillbox to move up and down relative to the bottom of the pillbox. And you can connect that, the lid and the bottom to what's called a linear generator, and use wave power to charge these batteries. That's fascinating. You know, it's it's like uh, wind power, only maybe more consistent depending on where you are in the ocean or where you are in the what kind of body of water. Exactly, exactly. And then we would associate that with what's called a long baseline sonar array. So one of these robots, when it's out doing something, could send a ping out, and three sonar buoys would determine when that arrived, and then triangulate where the robot is. And then a central controller could 
could, like the supervisor and the dog with the stick thing, send out a new search vector, which could be a compass heading and a distance to walk on that heading. And the robot would go out and walk around and do its thing pretty much autonomously. But then when it gets to the end of the search vector, it would send another ping to say where it got to, and that would report using SAR to the central station. And then the central station would be connected by wire Wi-Fi to an operator on shore to where you could basically say control this thing with an iPhone. Huh. Um so, well, yeah, maybe we'll talk about that in terms of kind of big picture for your work. I know this is a, a snippet of sort of biomimetics as a, a whole, but obviously you've got a pretty unique approach to sort of the way that you guys are doing. I would encourage anybody who's listening right now to go ahead and Google the, the work of uh, that Joseph is doing. Look at, look at Boston Dynamics. Look at Festo. Look at some of the folks that are pretty darn good at replicating animals. Um, on, on your own side, Joseph, uh, for... Um, for, for what you'd eventually want these lobsters to do kind of in, in the future, kind of the, the, the end game maybe it would be within the, the next decade or so, would it be to have an autonomous self-docking and charging uh, community of these underwater creatures that could go to a particular area of square kilometers, let's say, and just find every single mine conceivable... Um, and be able to kind of comb it all the way dry and make sure that it's that it's all set. I mean, would that sort of be the end goal for this? That would, that would, well, that would certainly be one end application. Yep. That, for example, studying animal behavior. To have a group of these down with cameras to where they could go out and photograph, for example, the spawning habits of codfish and then record those movies and bring them back to a base station and telemeter those back in so that you could be studying the behavior of codfish by having these robots go out and do the search for you. That would be a, a basic science application. Got it. Okay, so that might be another another interesting... Now, the uh, other thing is is there's uh, underwater pollution. Like in, in my area, we had a Sylvania plant where they used to break up the old uh, fluorescent tubes and throw them in the water behind the plant. Oh, that's tough. And that's a lot of mercury. And then... It turns out up in, in Beverly, Massachusetts, which is about 10 miles from here, uh, there was a factory that concentrated all the uranium for the Nagasaki weapon. Goodness. And uh, they took a lot of the waste and dumped it out in the ocean, and nobody's really mapped that out. So this would be another application of, of using this kind of technology to go out and look for some agent of harm. Huh, and, and so these creatures could go out with, with some kind of biomimetic smelling the, the detectors. Geiger counter, for that matter. What would you say? Oh, yeah, with a Geiger counter as well, yeah. And and go out with whatever sensory devices we'd want attached to them, but crawl around amply and maybe find the sources of this stuff and, you know, figure out more effective ways of dredging or where to start that process to make a healthier environment there? Yeah, so generally what robots are good for is things that are too boring for humans to do or too dangerous. Yep, dull, dull, dull and dangerous. That's what those robots are good it. at. You go, and hunting underwater mines, uh, I think for, certainly uh, fits that, that, the latter category. Yeah, I, I think it's it's probably a little bit of both, but certainly more of the latter category. Yeah, hunting underwater mines, you know, you, you got to uh, you got to really love a good rush to go hunt underwater mines, I think. <laughs> or a bang. <laughs> yeah, you got to yeah, really, really appreciate a good bang. Um so, so, okay, so even in the pollution domain, that sounds like another uh, potential application uh, in, in the future. Anything else that you think 
you know, let's say I, this is a this might be a fun question to close with here, Joseph. Uh, you know, ten years from now, um, you know, works work like what you're up to, like what Boston Dynamics is up to, and other folks are are doing. Um, you know, continues at a good pace. In, in the next decade or so ahead, where might we see? Um, you know, tangible applications of biomimetics. For, to my knowledge, at least on the on the grand scale, it seems more now to be a bit novel rather than pragmatic, at least at present, at least in many of its respects. I mean, as far as I know, maybe they are using Big Dog out in Iraq every day. I, I, don't, I don't really know if that's the case. Um, and, and same thing with a lot of, uh, you know, the creatures that you're talking about. There's an there's a absolute ton of, of potential applications. It's just about kind of getting them there. In terms of where you think these biomimetic creatures might might really kind of hit the ground running, for, for lack of better terms, in the next well, 10 years. Well, let me give you another spin on this. Go for it. Uh, how about just education? Yeah. So we have a, um, a library of routines in which we model um, these neurons and synapses in LabVIEW, which is, it turns out to be the fundamental architecture of Lego Mindstorms. So we have a, li a library that you can add to the Lego Mindstorms brick to control Lego robots with neurons and synapses. So this then leads to a, a curriculum that combines biology and engineering by applying neural principles to engineered devices. Got it. Okay, so another another application might be in teaching folks how this works and, and exactly. shedding and some more light. Exactly. In my neurophysiology class I teach, I have the students actually build neural circuits out of these electronic neurons and synapses to just study their properties. Got it. And I have a, a, an assignment in my neurophysiology class called Neurocreation, where the students are supposed to design a nervous system for a hypothetical animal that exhibits three behavioral acts. Huh. Cool. And so, so using biomimicry as a way to do synthetic approaches to understanding the function of the nervous system is, is I think, a really important application of this. And, and speaking of education, hopefully that's what we've done a little bit here on, on this episode of Tech Emergence and sort of shining a light on, on an area that we, I don't, I don't think, have really ever quite talked about here, which is uh, kind of the, the crossover of autonomy, AI, and, and biomimicry. So, Joseph, thank you so much for being able to, to share your insights today on the episode on Tech Emergence. It's a pleasure. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, and more. And we want to hear from you as well. So be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.